Hey, this is Adam Penapinto. I'm the pastor here at Hope Covenant Church, and I'm so glad that you're joining with us today. Whether this is your first time listening or you're a part of our Hope Covenant Church family, we would love to connect with you via social media on all social media outlets or on our website, hopecovenant.cc. I hope this word encourages, inspires, and challenges you in your daily walk with God as we dig deeper into his word. Let's jump right into today's message. I really want to encourage you and, and challenge you this morning with, um, with a word that I believe is, is really important, especially as we find ourselves in, in fairly ominous times regarding our culture, regarding the world. Um, and, you know, of course, historically, there have always been challenges that we have seen, whether it be wars and rumors of wars the Bible talks about, or whether it be social dynamics, cultural dynamics. Um, however, it does seem like there is somewhat of a, an escalation or somewhat of a rise in challenges that we've seen over the last few years and continue to see. I know we've come through this whole pandemic situation. I was talking to Gary before the service, and I mean, he and I are used to traveling overseas quite a bit. And so a lot of things have changed. You know, I've not really been out of the country, I think, for over two years now, two and a half years. And in 2018, I was in 13 different nations. So... So a lot has changed. In the midst of that, we know that God is still moving, that God is still faithful, and that nothing has taken God by surprise. Amen? Whether it be the invasion of Ukraine, the the pandemic, um, nothing has taken God by surprise. And God is always working. There's that song where even when you don't see it, he's still working. Um, God is always working, and I don't like to really say behind the scenes, even though he's always working behind the scenes, but he's always at the front of everything as well. So, um, so I want to kind of lean into something that I believe is real important for all of us here. Those that are listening by live stream, we welcome you this morning, and I pray that you'll be encouraged and challenged as you listen to this word. Let's, let's pray over the word. Father, we thank you for the honor of knowing you, Lord, we lean into the fact that you are faithful, God. It is your nature, it is, your, it is who you are, it is your makeup, and Lord, we lean into your faithfulness this morning. I pray, God, that you would awaken our hearts afresh, Lord, that, that eternity would become more real during this time that we're together with you. Holy Spirit, speak as only you can and Lord, make us alive in your kingdom as never before. We love you, Jesus. We magnify your name. And Father, I just thank you for this amazing house, this church. I thank you for Adam and Liz and the leaders here. I thank you for the investment that they are making in this region of the country and the world. And Father, I just pray for great grace to be upon this ministry, that this apostolic house, Lord, that you would use it more than any of us could ever even imagine in the days ahead. And Father, we just want to be where you're moving already. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I, I want to just kind of open up by, by sharing a, a personal story in the sense that something that affected Darla and myself fairly recently um, some of you, Gary, might remember um, this, this lady, but there was a dear saint that went to be with the Lord a couple of months ago. We were actually with her at the hospital in Asheville the day that she passed. Um, her name was Margaret Viss. I know she doesn't mind me using her name, but anyway. But her name was Margaret Viss, and, and, and Margaret was um, a really unique lady. I mean, 
I've known godly people for many years, and you know, I've been preaching now for 36 years by the grace of God. And I've, I've met a lot of amazing people of God. You know, Darla's parents were really my first mentors, and, and her mother was a powerful preacher and prayer warrior. And so their, their lives impacted me so, so deeply. And, and I, I know that I'm on this platform, but I know that I stand on their shoulders because of their faithfulness unto the Lord. And when Margaret passed away... Um, you know, there that day in the hospital, we all felt the loss of that, but we also felt the, the mandate to continue what she had put into all of us. And if, if, if you're ever around her, there's a couple of things that you will know. Number one, the joy of the Lord, as Nehemiah said, was her strength. I mean, she just radiated with joy. And you could put Margaret in any setting, teenagers, little kids, people in their 80s or 90s. And she was up in her 90s when she passed, or 80s when she passed away. But, but, but she would just exude with, with joy. And, and people were drawn. She had like a, um, a divine magnetism almost. People were really drawn to her life. And she was so loving. And what I loved about Margaret is, um, and I saw her operate in this many times, um, there could be a situation, and I know this in our own family, where there were grave challenges, and you could go to Margaret and, and share with her about a situation, maybe an individual, maybe that there was even offense involved, and the whole Matthew 18 thing was in play, and, and Margaret would feel your burden, would love you, would pray for you, but then would feel the same amount of love for the person that had offended you and would go after them and reach out to them in love as well. So there was um, a level of purity and... Um, lack of offense that she walked in that that just was amazing to me beyond that though the thing that we all um recognized and, and everyone she actually had two funerals one in Asheville and one up in Maryland and I was blessed to speak at both funerals but um I heard person after person eulogize her and the thing that really stood out the most was her prayer life she was a, an amazing intercessor Actually, she was one of the original intercessors with Reinhard Bonnke's ministry in Africa when Reinhard was preaching to 20 and 30 people before he began to preach to hundreds of thousands, even at times, you know, a crusade like in Nigeria, he'd speak to almost 2 million people over three or four nights. But, but Margaret was one of those ladies that she would literally go into these regions of Africa where Bonnke was going to do a ministry or do a, a, an evangelistic-type crusade. And Margaret would go in sometimes four to six weeks, sometimes eight weeks before Bonnke and the team would get there. And her and different ones, Suzette Hatting, they would literally do intercessory prophetic spiritual warfare. And they would break up the ground and tear down. You know, the Bible says the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they're mighty through God to the pulling down or the tearing down of strongholds. They would literally step into that place, that, that Romans 8 place where Paul talked about um, there's a place in prayer where words cannot even be uttered, where the Holy Spirit comes upon you with, with, with groanings because the Holy Spirit knows the heart of the Father and, and the Lord prays. So she would step into this place and would spend hours. I don't mean, you know, a little five-minute prayer a day to keep the devil away. I'm talking about she would literally invest her energy, her tears, her, her sweat into this place of prayer. And as a result, I, I believe that CFAN and now, of course, Daniel Kalinda, who some of us know Daniel here, but Daniel's ministry, I believe, 
um, is powerful. God's using him. But I believe you can look back to what happened when Bonke first started, and Daniel stands on the shoulders of people like Margaret Viss. So there's, there's something that, that I believe is so needed and so valuable that I believe, unfortunately, a lot of people have forgotten about. And that is the, the fact that, that there is an investment that was made to get Keith Collins here this morning. There was an investment that was made to get you here this morning. We're not just here because we decided to get up and come to church this morning on Sunday morning, even though that's a good thing to do, and we should be doing that every week. But there was something that, that happened that set up for us to be able to receive as the Lord moved in worship and as you watched the supernatural hand of God anoint these two and, and the band with them. And even through grave challenge and real pain, there was something that, that came forth, the, the glory of God, the, the worship of the living God. And, and they don't just stand here in their own strength, but there was an investment made that gives them the ability to stand even in the midst of one of the most painful storms of their life. And I hope you hear where I'm going this morning. There is something that, that I believe we must repossess in this hour that we live in. I remember the... The hours I've spent with Margaret Viss, and I spent a lot of time with her. Matter of fact, a few times we would both be speaking at the same conference up in Maryland or somewhere in that area. And, um, and I would pick her up. I would drive from my house here in Charlotte over to um, Asheville and pick her up. And we'd drive way around and come through Bristol, Tennessee, and then up into West Virginia and up into Western Maryland. And we would have hours together. And often we were usually doing one of three things. We were praying in tongues. Because she prayed all the time, especially in the spirit. Or we were laughing and the joy of the Lord was on us because she was an amazing person full of the joy. Or she was sharing about the faithfulness of God. And she, she lived through um, the apartheid situation with Nelson Mandela in South Africa. She's from Johannesburg. And she, she told me stories where soldiers were literally coming in to murder their family, their, her children and herself and her husband, John. And literally, there were times she would look out her kitchen window praying in tongues, and there would be like these 10-foot men standing in front, of their, in front of their driveway blocking the soldiers for coming. Angels would, would literally appear. This might sound strange to some people, but literally, she walked in a place where she knew that God was with her, and the worst they could do to her like she said was kill her anyway and to be absent from the bodies to be present with the Lord but there was something that 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 she walked in a reality of serving God that, that brought about a certain sense of faithfulness and authority in the kingdom that I believe we must we must cling to in a generation where we are losing our families we're losing our teenagers we're losing men and women of God to heresy and apostasy and, and sin and all these things. And, and we're looking at our culture continue to free fall into darkness this morning. Some of us need to remember why we are here and lean in to those supernatural deposits that God has put into our lives. Let me read some, some verses to you this morning that will kind of Give this a little more of a platform or a foundation. Um, 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 1. 
Most of us or many of us could quote this verbatim, different translations. But Paul said, imitate me just as I also imitate Christ or follow my example. One translation is I follow Christ. Now, we've heard that and, and we know that, but, but I started thinking about that in depth a little bit recently. What is Paul really saying when he says, follow me as I follow Christ? He's not saying because I'm a good preacher and because I know how to do the external displays of ministry, do what I'm doing or act the way I'm acting. There's some, some merit to that. But no, Paul, I believe, is literally saying, do what I do because I live the way that Jesus lived. And what is one of the things when we look at the the life of Jesus, we know he's the son of God as well as God himself, God incarnate. But he was also the, the son of man, which made him the perfect, unblemished sacrifice that provided redemption, salvation, freedom from our sins. And because of that, because he was the son of man, right? He was born of a virgin, but he took on flesh, the Bible said. And as the son of man... I want you to hear a little bit about who Jesus was. And I believe when Paul says, do what I'm doing or follow me because this is what Jesus did and I'm following him. Listen to the prayer life of Jesus Christ. Hebrews 5, 7. In the days of his flesh, speaking of Jesus, he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death. He was heard because of his reverence. Matthew 14, 23. After he sent the crowds away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. And when it was evening, Jesus was there all alone. Luke 6, 12. It was at this time that Jesus went off to the mountain to pray, and he spent the whole night in prayer to God. Mark 1, 35. In the early morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up. He left the house, and he went away to a secluded place and was there praying. So I believe One thing when Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ, he's saying this, look at the level of intimacy that Jesus, the Son of Man, had with God the Father. And this, listen, when we look at the life of Paul, there are many things that characterize his life. I mean, persecution was a major thing, right? But Paul said, concerning his persecution, these light And momentary afflictions are nothing compared to the glory that awaits me, right? What what were his momentary afflictions? He was beat by the Jews five times with 39 lashes. He was beat to death and left outside the city to die. And the Lord raised him back up. He was betrayed. He said, everyone in Asia has betrayed me or turned their backs on me. He was shipwrecked and spent a day and a night in, in the Mediterranean Sea. I mean, he knew what it was to be hungry, to be in prison, to be cold, to be naked in a dungeon. However, he said these are light and momentary things compared to the glory that awaits me. What allowed Paul to see into that place of glory? Friend, I believe the depth of intimacy through his prayer life equipped him to to grasp eternity in such a way that the things of this present world, though painful at times, are nothing 
compared to what awaits us. You see, when the church loses this reality, then we become a group of people with learned behavior patterns that can go through the motions without expectation, anticipation, and the great hope. What is the great hope? Friend, the blessed hope is that this is not the end down here. Leonard Ravenhill said it this way. This world is a dressing room for eternity. That's all it is. And when that becomes real in the tree, see, that's the deposit that Margaret Viss left in Keith Collins. She, like Paul said, set your affection on things above, not on things of this earth. One thing I know about Margaret, her, her, her roots never went too deep into this world. She had a lot of pain in her life with children and different things. I know some of the stories. But she lived in a different realm. You've heard the saying that they're so heavenly minded, they're no earthly good. Well, I think we can reverse. Most people are so earthly minded now, they're no heavenly good. Now, she was heavenly minded, but because she was so eternally and heavenly minded, she was very good to everyone she came in contact. She brought about a realm of reality to what it means to really know Jesus. Let me be transparent with you. I know what it's like to preach without being a man of prayer. I, I, I've been doing this long enough, 36 years. I mean, it's not real long, but it's not, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's long. <laughs> Darla and I, we started pastoring our first church when I was 19. I was just getting out of puberty. Just kidding. But, I mean, my voice was still squeaking when I was preaching. But anyhow, we were so young. At the age of 19, we started pastoring a church in Maryland, and, and we didn't know really had to do anything but we knew how to pray so what did we do we just began to have prayer meetings we we started pastoring this little church i think there's 12 or 14 people two families and um they didn't get along too well but anyhow um so we just we didn't know anything to do but just to pray and believe god and i'd watched her mom and dad and i saw their prayer room and their prayer life and man they had the all-night friday prayer meetings and god would come in and angels would come in and the glory of god and they would fight demons and rescue prostitutes and drug addicts that was her background kind of like a david wilkerson thing almost but up in akron ohio so i knew that this was real and i so we just began to to preach the gospel i mean you have to understand this is before the internet i got saved when i was 16 started pastoring i was 19 and back then we preached sunday morning sunday night and wednesday night i couldn't look for you know a hundred snappy sermon starters on the internet there was no internet so so i had a strong's concordance and an unger's bible dictionary and prayer and a bible and that was it but, but listen, we, we dug in and we began to, to go into the streets and eventually our, our town doctor came in and got saved. Our, our personal doctor got saved. And because of him, we were able to have beans and rice and a little bit of meat to eat because he started paying tithes. But, but I mean, that's how, that's how rough it was. But my point is this. We made it through some of those challenges, and we made mistakes. We all make mistakes, but I can look back. God was faithful even in the darkest seasons of us trying and failing and, and, and faltering, trying to be faithful to pastor men. We, we would go to the streets. Darla and I were out. When we were 16 and 17, we rented our first building in West Virginia and started an outreach ministry. And we were in the bar, literally going to the bars and, and telling people about Jesus. And the bar owner, he would actually let me preach inside the bar on Friday and Saturday nights. 
We were just crazy and radical. We didn't know what to do but just love Jesus and pray. But something had been instilled in me through her parents. And that was the fact that God is real. And that his gospel works. And that prayer changes things. So we just begin to run hard after God. And listen, I just knew to, to follow J.B. and Arliss Merle, her parents, because they were following Jesus. I believe all of us as people of God need to have the ability with Paul that we can say, follow me, imitate me, just as I am imitating Jesus Christ. Because Jesus was a man of prayer, I'm going to be a man of prayer. Because Jesus forgave completely, I'll forgive completely. Because Jesus was a lover of humanity, I'll love humanity. That, that, that this investment, this deposit that, that I want to read about now becomes who we are. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 1. Again, the Apostle Paul writing to his spiritual protege or his spiritual son, Timothy. I love, sec- I love first and second Timothy and Titus. We call them the pastoral epistles. I've always called them the apostolic epistles. Because I believe Timothy was really more of an apostolic figure in Ephesus as he's fighting against false teaching and heresy and all that kind of stuff. But anyhow, there's definitely some pastoral qualities here for sure. But 2 Timothy has this level of, um, let me say, paternal warmth to it. and This fatherly warmth. In other words, 1 Timothy... Paul is loving on Timothy, but he's also what, what we call in the South. Gary always laughs at me about it. He's shucking corn. I mean, he, he, he's dealing with stuff. He, he's getting down to business because there's false teaching. There's craziness going on. So Paul is adjuring him. He's challenging him in his apostolic pastoral role to stand up. Don't worry about how young you are, son. You be faithful to the call of God. But 2 Timothy, though it has some of that, it also has more of what I call an embrace. He embraces Timothy and he exudes with this fatherly spiritual love that I believe Timothy needed. And we all need that at times, right? But listen to 2 Timothy chapter 1 and starting in verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, according to the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, a beloved son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve with a pure conscience as my forefathers did. As without ceasing, I remember you in my prayers night and day, greatly desiring to see you, being mindful of your tears that I may be filled with joy. Just feel the love there from a father. Listen to what he said. When I call to remembrance the genuine faith that is in you, one translation says sincere faith, which dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded is in you also. Therefore, I remind you to stir up the gift of God. One translation says fan into flame. Stir up the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. What is Paul telling his spiritual son? Remember where you came from, son. Remember the price that was paid for the faith that is in you. He said, remember your grandmother. Remember your mother. There was something about them. They weren't just church attenders. Darling and I were at a funeral yesterday for 
a dear friend that Gary would have known, Hazel Hunt, that passed away about a week and a half ago, and I was blessed to share at the funeral yesterday over in Rayford, North Carolina. But Sydney Hunt, her husband's mother, got up, and she's a pastor, and she began to talk about Hazel's life. Hazel wasn't just a church attender. She was a true believer in Jesus. And it didn't matter if it was the restaurant or the, the, the church house or wherever she was. She was a, an ambassador of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. What is Paul telling Timothy? Remember the genuine, sincere faith, the, the walk with God, the, the legacy of intimacy that your parents, that your grandmother, that your mother walked in. And he said, and that same deposit is also in you. Listen, if the enemy can steal the deposit of our heritage, our legacy, the history. And I, I'm not talking about living in the past. Don't misunderstand me, but listen to me. I will never disparage my past. Why? It is there that I learned the faithfulness of God. It is there that I had scars come into my life through wounds, but now I can look at those scars and I can say, even though I was bloodied in the midst of the battle, I'm still standing. Why? God was faithful. And the deposit of my forefathers and my foremothers still pulsates like a divine Holy Ghost energy on the inside of me. And I can stand when I don't have strength to stand. A Chinese apostle who had planted hundreds of underground churches, who had been in prison multiple times. He was up in his late 80s. They asked the brother, they said, brother, what is the real sign of a Chinese apostle? Here's what he said. He said, the real sign of any apostle is that when everyone else has fallen and left the faith, he's still standing. And you see, sometimes we get bloody in the battle. Sometimes the claws of the enemy come down on our soul and we run red with blood in the midst of the battle. And all hell tries to taunt us and mock us, kind of like, when Nehemiah was building the wall, remember that? And those, came, those that came against him, they, what they say, what do these feeble Jews, will they fortify themselves, will they sacrifice, will they make an end in the day, will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish which are burned? They were mocking and taunting, but Nehemiah knew the word of the Lord in his life. He knew the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He knew the God that, that, that split the sea. He knew the God that was a pillar, a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. He knew the faithfulness of God, and he stood on that legacy of knowing God. Friend, we can't just know church. We can't just know what it means to go through the motions. Do we really know him this morning? Listen, I, I'm, as Adam said, man, I have a heart for revival. I, I have a heart for a move of God, for another awakening in America. But what good is it for me to have a heart for that if I'm not walking intimately with Jesus myself? Do we know him? There, there's something, if you're a born-again child of God, friend, there is something inside of you that is there for a reason. I want to encourage you and challenge you as Paul did with his spiritual son Timothy remember the gift of God that's in you remember that sincere genuine faith that was imparted unto you through salvation of course but also through others that have paid the price 
Some have shed their blood throughout history so that this gospel can be preached in Huntersville, North Carolina this morning. Some are in prison right now, faithful to the call of God, faithful to the gospel. Listen to what Count Ludwig von Zinzendorf said, the man who founded the Moravian missionaries. I have but one passion. It is he and it is he alone. He said, the world is the field and the field is the world. And henceforth, that country shall be my home where I can be most used of God in winning souls and bringing people to the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Zinzendorf sent missionaries around the world. Because of his faithfulness, even John Wesley really claims his true salvation experience because of the Moravian missionaries, the great Methodist John Wesley. You see, there is this primary element in the life of every single follower of Jesus. What is that? Friend, we have to steward and guard our devotion life. Do you know you can become a scholar? You can learn ancient languages and all that's fine if that's your calling. You can become a professor in an elite seminary. You can get all the education, all the titles before your name or even after your name. You can do all that and still not know Jesus in an intimate way. The, the primary call is, listen to James 4.8, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Matthew 5.6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be filled. You see, I believe there's a great tragedy in much of the modern American church that we have learned to do church so effectively that we don't even feel like we need God anymore. Listen, I'm all for excellence. I mean, I really like, I'm just reading through the Pentateuch again, the first five books of the Bible this this year, and kind of back into the details of the, the tabernacle, I mean, all the things, and Bezalel, and, I mean, just, it's, it's amazing, the, the detail, but, but listen to me. I believe sometimes we are so addicted to production that we forsake prayer. When we used to have prayer team, people that would show up, I, I remember, I, I've been in these meetings many times, people that would come an hour or two hours before a corporate meeting, why? They would break up the ground. They would come and and seek God and cry out to God. So now we have production teams, but where are the prayer teams? Where are the people that will tap into the realm of heaven and believe God for a move of God? Listen, um, unlike much of what we read and even preach about, sadly, the ability to instill a deep hunger for Jesus into those that we are discipling evades a large percentage of the church. Jesus didn't say make converts. He said make disciples. What is he saying? People that know who God really is. People that walk in such a way that that, that they have attained and sustained this deep intimacy with Jesus. I've studied the lives of some of these great, what we call heroes of the faith or giants of the faith, whether it be Wesley, Whitfield, Amy Carmichael. I mean, some of these great people. And, and I've actually focused a few times on those that did not backslide or those that didn't go into weird doctrine. And what is, what's the common thread in all their lives? 
Some were great orators, some were not. Some were great authors, some were not. Some had big ministries, some had small ministries. But there's, there's a thread that runs through every one of them that you can find. And a lot of times you'll find it because some of them were faithful to journal daily. The common thread is intimacy with Jesus. Matter of fact, I remember reading where John Wesley wrote. He said, and he's, I think he's like in his late 70s at this point. He's saying, the demands of ministry have become so extreme that I must now get up an hour early to spend more time with Jesus before I start my day. And Wesley would oftentimes have his first sermon at 5 a.m. in the morning. Who was in that service? A bunch of radicals, I guess. <laughs> and he'd preach sometimes six, seven times a day. And this is up in his 80s and ride a horse from each place to preach. And that's, I know that is, that, that, that's like a radical picture. And all, but listen, the fuel was not the noble call to preach the gospel. The fuel was intimacy with Jesus. You see, I believe that oftentimes when we talk about missionaries, even those that have given their lives or those that, that sacrifice great. I mean, go back to the David Livingstons in, in Africa and, and the Adoniram Judsons and the, these type of people that, that literally gave everything up to go to the mission field. It's not that they were just noble in character. No, they were stimulated through intimacy with Jesus. They were so in love with him that his love compelled them to go and make Jesus known in the nations of the world. You see, I'm not talking about like some works-based thing where you got to clock in your three hours. No, I'm talking about knowing Jesus in an intimate way. So much so that whatever the cost, whatever the call, it's an honor just to say, Lord, here I am. My life. For your glory. I, I call it normal Christianity. The American church calls it crazy. What are you talking? Why? Because oftentimes, in, in, and I'm not trying to just slam the American church, but a, a lot of churches around the world, and I've been around the world, so many people want a feeling, they want an experience. There's nothing wrong with feelings and even a good experience. And I believe we should be the most welcoming, loving. I believe we should be excellent, all those kind of things. But friend, God didn't call Keith Collins to be a consumer. He didn't call me to put my butt in a nice padded chair on Sunday morning and test the water and see if I like what Pastor Adam says this week or did I like those songs they sang this. No, friend, our role is to come here to celebrate the goodness of God, to be equipped and prepared and to go out into the world and do the works of Jesus in our generation. Why? Because this generation needs people that know Jesus more than people that know how to do good ministry. Some of the great revivalists were uneducated, but they were educated in the secret place. Evan Roberts, the revivalist from the Welsh Revival, was a coal miner at the age of 12 years old. He came in a great burden from the Lord for revival for Wales. It said oftentimes when he stood to preach, he would not even bring scripture or points. He would stand and he would begin to weep. And as he wept, standing behind the rostrum or the podium, people would begin to feel the power of God. Conviction would hit the room. Sometimes people falling onto the floor, crying out in repentance. Not because of Evan Roberts' orator skills or his education, but because he knew Jesus and he brought the glory of heaven to bear in his generation. Those that have impacted me the most were not the most skilled and polished, but they were the most prayerful. 
And you know what I'm, listen, you, you can, I can teach. I, I've spent years, and, you know, Gary's been in some of these seasons with me, Darla. We've spent years trying to train people how to do ministry, and there's merit in that, and I, I'm fine with that. I don't have a problem with teaching homiletics and all that kind of stuff, but can I tell you something? You can teach someone to speak, and they can still not really know Jesus, and they can still speak. But to take someone by the hand, when I met Darla's parents, they weren't just trying to get me to preach. But they instructed me in intimacy with Jesus. This is, this is the, I believe, the, the missing thing in the church. Listen, you can go to a church growth seminar. Some of it might even be okay. Some of it's probably not okay in my opinion. You can go to seminar for everything and anything. We've become so corporate-minded in the church system in America, though, that, that we've lost what really matters is God in our midst. And our people walking with Jesus is the supernatural still real in the midst of the church. Or are we just kind of fumbling our way through things? And I believe there's a legacy of intimacy that the Lord wants to instill in the people of God in this generation. There is a, a place of, of knowing Him. There's a place of, of walking with Him. There's a place where His love is so overwhelming. I've often said that, listen, I've had preachers tell me, you know, that maybe I was a little too passionate or if you could calm down a little bit, your ministry would probably grow a lot more. You understand what I'm saying? I don't, I, don't, I don't know where you came from or what your salvation story is. We all have a testimony. But when I saw Jesus as he was, when I beheld the horror and the beauty of a bloody cross, my life was wrecked. There was nothing else to do. But make Jesus known. And I've, I've faltered. I, you know, we all make mistakes in my youth and different things. But can I tell you something? He's more beautiful to me now than he's ever been before. I, this is radical, but it's, I'd rather shed my blood than compromise the gospel. Matter of fact, I'd rather the Lord take me off the scene than allow me to fall into compromise. Not that he would, but I, I don't want... I don't want to bring any disgrace on the name of Jesus. In a generation that is accepting everything, celebrating perversion and acting like it's love and righteous and moral, in a generation that has taken the Bible and just picked out the parts they didn't like and still claim to be the church, I don't want to go there. I would rather not have anything but Jesus. And at the end of my life, be able to stand before him without shame or embarrassment because I refuse to compromise the gospel. Listen, I'm not here because I'm just faithful and dedicated. and de I'm here because there's a deposit that was put into me from Darla's parents, from other people along the way. There is, there's something that, that, that screams out that, that Jesus must be made known in this generation. And that this generation, Generation X, Generation Z, all these generations, they need to know the reality of who Jesus really is. They need to know that he stands glorified in the midst of his church this morning. John saw him on the island of Patmos, 60 miles off the coast of Ephesus. And when he saw him, he said, his face 
was like the sun. His hair was white like wool. His eyes were burning with fire. A sword protruded out of his mouth. He was not some weak, emaciated, little German-looking man. No, friend, he was full of the power of God. He was glorified when John saw him on that place or in that place. The Bible said he fell down like a dead man before him. You see, when Jesus is rightly seen in the midst of his church, and when the spirit of prophecy, according to Revelation, when the spirit of prophecy reveals the reality of Jesus in our midst, everything changes, friend. Everything changes. We, we, we leave the, the realm of human ability and we enter into the spirit of God. And the Holy Spirit can do more in a second than we can do in a hundred years through our ability and our education and even our experience. We need Jesus, friend. Oh, this is simple, ABC, one, two, one, two, three, Christianity this morning. I, I know that. But, friend, it's kind of like fundamentals. You can show me a great football team, and they can have all these trick plays, and all, but if they, don't have, if they don't block and tackle effective, I don't care how many trick plays they have. They're not going to win. You see, there are fundamentals of our faith that when we forsake them and we try to replace them with human ability or with learned behavior patterns. Listen, friend, there, there is an element of waiting on God that we've lost. And I believe when we learn to wait upon the Lord, as the word of God says, then we renew our strength in him. If you enjoyed today's message, I want to encourage you to like it and share it on social media or jump onto our website, hopecovenant.cc and click on our giving link and help us continue to share the message of Jesus across the world. God bless you and have an awesome week.